Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so this week our portion is Vayetze, and it's when Jacob is leaving Beersheba and heading up to Haran. And last week we talked about, we talked about the deception that was carried out where Jacob received the blessing that was due to Esau. And how we talked about the, the possibility that he didn't set out with the intention of deceiving, that he set out with the intention of overcoming his name as a deceiver, just as his mom would have wanted, given that she wasn't even willing to call him Jacob in the beginning, that it was, her, that it was his father Isaac who called him that. So she wanted to see him overcome that identity and to move forward into really all the blessings that God had for him to walk straight with God, which is actually what one of the um, interpretations or meanings of Israel, one who's straight with God, from Yashar El. Okay, Yashar being straight. And um, so we talked about how he was on a journey of seeking to overcome his name and to take on a new name. And when he was put to the test, when he, when he came under pressure, he, he failed, right? He stood there before his father and he uh, received a blessing that was not his to receive. And we, we spoke also about how at the end, when he comes back from... <laughs> from his time with Laban, how he begins to return the blessing to Esau that was originally Esau's, right? And that there was a reconciliation that takes place there. But there's this, there's this span of time that has to take place before Jacob arrives at the place of reconciling with Esau and coming to the point where he is no longer going roundabout and how he addresses things, but now rather hitting them straight on. And the, the process of going through his, uh, through his change, through really his time of determining who are you really, he encounters a lot of trials. And really he hits rock bottom, but he's brought up from the ashes. And that's what I feel like the message is for this morning is, is up from the ashes. So we're going to look at, at various things along that. And one of the key messages, I, I think, in this is that God brings victory out from the darkness. Right? He brings victory out from the darkness. Now, when Jacob sets out to go to Beersheba, or for, to go to Haran from Beersheba, our portion begins talking about an encounter that he has. And, but I want to move past that and then come back to the encounter because, you know, when I mentioned that he sets out and he's hit rock bottom, you may ask, well, how is it that you say he's hit rock bottom? I mean, here he has received the blessing. And then last week's portion concludes at the beginning of Genesis 28 with Isaac summoning Jacob and giving him the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of the covenant, and sending him forward to go find his bride. And He's really sending him on a parallel journey, right? So if you think back to when Abraham 
sent Eliezer to go find a bride for Isaac. He sent Eliezer up to Laban's house. <clears throat> and in this case, now Jacob, I mean, Isaac is sending Jacob up to Laban's house to find a bride for Jacob. So you've got this parallel. You have someone who has the blessings and is, is headed out. So you would think that Jacob's in pr pretty good shape. But the text seems to tell us a little different story. Because if we were to look in Genesis 29, verse 1, I think it's 29, verse 1 that I wanted to start at. Maybe it's not. No, it's 29, verse 9. Okay. <clears throat> and this, this, I believe, is the parallel that I was talking about. So while he was, so I'm sorry to tell the story here. Jacob heads up and he arrives in the land of Haran. And he comes upon some shepherds and three flocks of sheep who are sitting by the well. And he's trying to find out if they know who Laban is. And the people who are there say, well, here comes Laban's daughter, uh, Rachel. And so here in verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you're my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, that's an interesting translation. There's another way of translating this where he says, nevertheless. The Hebrew actually suggested he says, well, nevertheless, you're my flesh and blood. And he allows him to stay with him for a month. Now, if you think about that encounter, right? So Laban runs to him, meets him, kisses him, embraces him. And he's like, Jacob tells him the story of, hey, here's what's going on. He's like, well, nevertheless, you're my kin, you can stay here. That's a little bit different than how Laban greeted Eliezer, right? So if we were to look back in uh, Genesis 24, 28 to 31. Okay, so is that here? Nope, that's not there. Okay, 28, uh, or 24, 28 to 31. Here we go, thank you. Then the young woman ran, this is speaking of Rebecca running to tell her family about what Eliezer had done. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared a house and a place for the camels. So he sees all the riches that were given to Rebecca and he runs out. He's like, yes, my brother, come on in. I welcome you. So then when, when now you fast forward in his life and here comes Jacob and he comes to Rachel, Rachel comes in and says, hey, you know, the, the, the one who's inherited from your, uh, your nephew, he's come or your nephew, your nephew has come. And uh, so he runs out to meet him. And he hears what's going on. He's like, well, man, this isn't as great as I thought, but go ahead. You're my kin. Stay with me. 
it's odd, right? Because you, you, you ask, why did Eliezer come with great gifts? And why did Jacob come with nothing to offer? In fact, he says, okay, well, he asked for Rachel in marriage. He, and he has to give seven years of service. He didn't have money to give. He didn't have gifts to give her when he arrived. He watered her flock, which is different than what happened with Eliezer. He did, no gifts. Nevertheless, you're my kin. Okay, fine, you can stay. And you have to work for this daughter instead of us just giving freely Rebecca to Isaac. Okay, so that's, an, that's interesting. The next thing that we say is back when Jacob has the encounter, When Jacob has the encounter and God gives him promises, Jacob then says, and we'll read it later on, but just briefly in 2820, Jacob took a vow saying, if God will be with me, will guard me on this way that I'm going and will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear. And I return to my, to in peace to my father's house. All right. So he's saying these things. So here's a guy setting out on a 500 mile journey from Beersheba to, um, Heron, he stops in what some, the sages, some, some say, was uh, Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, which is early on the journey. And at that point, the only thing he has for a pillow is a stone. And he's saying, if God will give me clothes to wear and bread to eat, that's strange. Why would Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob out penniless to go and get a bride from their from Rebecca's brother, who they know to be all about wealth. It doesn't make sense. All right, so the sages say within this, well, there's a couple of opinions. One is that they were worried that he would be robbed along the way. But there's another opinion uh, that Rashi speaks of, that as soon as Jacob left and went on his way, that Esau dispatched Eliphaz, his son, to go and kill Jacob. And so when Eliphaz overtook Jacob, Jacob said, well, Jacob spoke with him and, and encouraged him to take all of his money instead of killing him because a poor man is as good as a dead man, right? And th this is the, the context, the understanding, especially if you're headed up to Laban who cares all about wealth and you're trying to get a bride, you're as good as dead in Laban's eyes. Nevertheless, you're my kin, okay fine. Because Laban does care about family, but he also cares about wealth, right? And so, so they, they say that he essentially paid off Eliphaz and said, you can still return to Esau and tell him that I'm dead because I'm as good as dead. And so Eliphaz, being one who had been raised in Isaac's household and knowing what right was, couldn't bring himself to kill Jacob. So he agreed to it and took the money, leaving Jacob penniless. Right. So now Jacob sets out with nothing on his journey. But it's at that point where he's lost everything that he comes and God encounters him at what the scripture calls the place. And think about this, too. Here he is. Jacob is 77 years old. He's headed up to Haran. He thinks he's going to go up there to get a bride. But he, now he's stripped of all of his possessions. His brother still wants to kill him, but now he's heading into hiding. And he might sit and ask, man, what's all this been for? 
you know, what is my future and how is this going to play out? And so then that's, I think that's this, the scene that we have when Jacob has this encounter here in Genesis 28.10. So our portion started out saying, Jacob left Beersheba and went, to Haran, went toward Haran, and he came to a place and stayed there that night. It actually says he came to the place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have, I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it, on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So when it says he went on his journey, the scripture says, so Jacob lifted his feet and went toward the land of the Easterners. And that's always struck me about how he lifted his feet, right? So if you're talking about someone who's kind of downcast or on hard times, they're not lifting their feet, they're dragging their feet. So if Jacob was at a, at a low point and was now heading out, lifting his feet, going forward, saying, I may be penniless, but I have an encounter with the Lord. I have a word from the Lord. And he's told me what he will do, right? So he's going out with an expectation and a confidence. Really, he has a renewed vision of what lies ahead for him, okay? And within this ladder, right, the scripture tells us of this vision that he had. And this vision was really a vehicle of prophecy where the Lord was speaking to him about things that were to come. Um, now the ladder, the scripture says the ladder was set earthward and its head reached to the heavens. And this isn't the first time that there was a structure that was set earthward and its head reached the heavens. Okay, the other time that that happened was the Tower of Babel. Okay? And so there's a contrast being laid out here between these two items. You have one that's a ladder between earth and heaven that God appears over the top of it. And you see angels ascending and descending. And then you have a structure that was built by man 
that was set earthward and its head reached to the heaven. And in that, in the Tower of Babel, that was people gathering together to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be scattered on the earth, right? And they were doing it for their glory in God's face. But now God sets a ladder between earth and heaven to represent his doing on how he's going to connect heaven and earth, not how man is going to connect it, but how he will connect it. And so there's a, a few things in here with interpretation. Whenever we have dreams or visions, we need to have understanding of what these are telling us, right? And we need revelation from God to understand what his message is, right? Jared spoke, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, whenever we had our fellowship lunch, he talked about the month of Kislev and how it's the month of miracle and the month of dreams because of so many times that we see in this month's portion the mentioning of dreams. So God speaks in dreams. He, he has in the past. He does today. For those who have ears to hear, right? And the dream, if you receive a dream, it can mean that something is, is set in stone and it's going to happen. Other times it may be an invitation for you to walk into something new or to encourage you to take a certain path, right? And I speak of that simply because, uh, well, there have been many times the Lord has, has spoken to many people in this congregation, giving us understanding of, of what lies ahead or giving us warnings, um, giving us things to pray about, uh, helping us to see something that He is working that we don't yet see coming to fruition so that we can then agree and pray into it. And so within this encounter here and this ladder, there's various ways that it can be understood and interpreted, primarily with the aspect of, again, God making a connection between the earth and the heavens. And it's a ladder. In, in, in Hebrew, it's sulam. Okay? Now, the numerical value of sulam, of ladder, is the same numerical value as Sinai. Okay? So, there can be a connection between Sinai and this ladder, and one way of it being understood is that the ladder is Torah. God is at the head on Sinai, and that Moses and Aaron were ascending and descending to bring the message to the people. So God was making a connection between heaven and earth at Sinai, and that connection was the Torah. Right? Um, I find that one interesting primarily because the Torah is the Word of God, right? The Word of God written on stone, the Word of God written on Torah scrolls, right, which are animal flesh. And then you have Yeshua, who is himself the ladder, the connection between earth and heaven, the one whose feet were set toward the earth and whose head reaches to the heaven. His dominion reaches to the heavens. And even in our uh, gospel portion this week in John 1, 51, Yeshua speaks saying that, this is right, John 1, 51, He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So He declares Himself to be the ladder, the bridge, the living Torah, the way that God makes the connection between earth and heaven, and the way on which 
we come into the presence of the Father, right? And it's really a beautiful picture of, of that. Now, the way that Yeshua made the path for us to come into the presence of the Father was through his death and his resurrection, right? And Yeshua struggled and wrestled with many things as we did, as we do in our life, right? The scriptures say that he, he learned obedience through his sufferings and he was afflicted as we are afflicted so that he can know the troubles and the trials that we go through, right? And he is our <clears throat> high priest who can empathize with us and who can also stand as the one who represents us as an advocate before the Father. And with his death and resurrection, we see a, a point where his disciples had come to their end. They had hit their low point. They had been following him for many years, right? Believing that he was the Messiah. And then even though he had warned them, right, of what was to come, they, they didn't grasp it. They didn't understand it until afterwards. But so he dies. And with that, hope is being lost. But that hope was not done because the story wasn't done. Right? God wasn't finished with the death of Yeshua. He was going to bring Yeshua up, raise him by the power of his spirit, give him the resurrected life, and to be the hope, the one who, through whose life we would have life. Right? And so our, our name of our congregation is Emmaus Road. Right. And this is a, a story that I shared with someone earlier this week. He was, he was sharing about how 11 months ago he had, he had been at his rock bottom. And he was at the point of being homeless and on drugs. And relationships in his family had been destroyed. And he found himself at his end. But he went to, uh, it's called Victory. Um, it's Victory Outreach, yes. And how he had gone there really just for looking for a place to eat and get cleaned up with no desire at all to understand what all this victory was, right? But as he, would go, as he was there for a, few, a, a couple of days, he was like, well, I think I'll stay a little bit longer. And then the words that, they were, that he was hearing of hope, of reconciliation, of restoration, begin to transform him and work in his heart. And he began to experience the love and restoration that God brings and that hope can arise from the ashes. And it was so wonderful to hear the story of restoration that was going on in his life and how, you know, he didn't have to be there anymore, but he wanted to be there because he was seeing the growth. And how his daughter, who he had been estranged from, was beginning to come and see him there at the center and to go to church with him. And he was beginning to see his grandson. He's seeing relationships restored, right? And I was just thinking of the beauty of God's restoration. And... Uh, Sometimes we forget the beauty of that, 
right? Sometimes we forget because we're, maybe we're so far removed from our low point. You know, we may be in our low point right now, right? Various people, we're all at different, different stages in our life, different difficulties we're walking through. But there's times we can get removed from it and we can forget just the beauty and the purity of the good news. The message of the new life that God can give. And we need to remember those milestones that we've walked through, those victories that God has brought us through. And to know that just as there was hope for us back then, there's hope for us now. Just as there was hope for me and you, there's hope for those who are walking through trouble right now too. And they need to hear the message of reconciliation. They need to hear the hope that God can bring life from the dead. That it doesn't matter what it looks like right now. What matters is what God sees and what God says, I'm going to bring life from the dead. And that's where he's encountering Jacob. And he's saying, Jacob, you're still in the walk of becoming the man I've created you to be. You have stumbled and you have fallen and you still haven't moved out of the crooked into the straight. But I'm telling you that's the path that I'm going to bring you on. And I'm not going to forsake you and I'm not going to leave you until I've accomplished what I said I will do. That's what Jacob needed to hear. He needed to hear that God was with him. And he said, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to go. And he does, you know, he does say, if you'll do these things, then these are the things I'm going to do for you, right? But there's a trust that he has too and that renews his step and that lifts him up and he picks up his feet and he goes and he says, I know I don't have a penny, but God's going to make a way where there was no way, right? And so he goes forward and he moves into this and he goes and meets with Laban and tells Laban that he wants to marry Rachel. And he agrees to work seven years for Laban in order to marry Rachel. But if we know the story, we know that it doesn't quite work out exactly the way that Jacob thought it was going to work out because Laban deceives him. Um, we'll, read, we'll read a few verses here. Okay, so this is in Genesis 29, 18. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will work for you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I give her to another man. Remain with me. So Jacob worked seven, it's still not a ringing, ringing endorsement, <laughs> but, but still, he, okay, he's agreed. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him a few days because of his love for her. Jacob said to Laban, Deliver my wife, for my term is fulfilled, and I will consort with her. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. And it was in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he consorted with her. And Laban gave her Zilpah, his maidservant, a maidservant to Leah, his daughter. And it was in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. So he said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, 
Such is not done in our place to give the younger before the elder. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one too for the work which you will perform for me yet another seven years. So Jacob did so, and he completed the week for her. And he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to him as a wife. Okay, so Jacob worked another seven years. So it was seven years of labor, and then he received Leah as a wife by deceit. And then one week later, he married Rachel and worked another seven years. And at the end of the seven years, at the end of the seven years, Joseph is born. Okay, so during these seven years that Jacob continued to work for Laban, Leah gave birth to six sons and one daughter. Uh, the two maidservants each gave birth to two children. And then Rachel gave birth to Joseph. And then it's at that time, Jacob says, okay, it's time for me to go and figure out how I'm going to build up my own household. And he talks with Laban. Laban recognizes that the only reason that he's been blessed is on the account of Jacob. And so he agrees to work, with, work for him again and begins the process of six more years of labor. But during this time, Jacob is actually building up his flocks. And it's at the end of 20 years that Jacob leaves and flees Laban's house. And our portion tells the story of how Laban pursued him, but God essentially, God delivered Jacob out of Laban's hand. And our portion ends with Jacob encountering angels just as he's about to enter into the land again. So our portion begins with Jacob and angels, and it ends with Jacob and angels, All right? Which is interesting, right? It's almost like it's bookends of the portion. And in the scripture, it actually is bookends of a chiasm. Now, I don't have the chiasm written out here for, for you guys. You'll have to look it up yourselves. But there's, there's actually a chiasm in this portion that begins with Jacob leaving and going up to Laban and encountering angels. And it, it, comes, it ends with him leaving Laban and coming back to the land and encountering angels. Now, if you follow the storyline and you were to read it along the way, you're going to find that as, as in a chiasm, okay, so a chiasm for, for those who may not know, basically there's a storyline that's played out where you have a sequence of events. Say, let's say sequ uh, sequence one through three. One thing happens, a second and a third thing happens. And then it reverses, the third thing happens or, or the, a parallel of the third thing happens, back to a parallel of the second, back to a parallel of the first. So it kind of goes in and then comes back out. And it's, its center point is kind of the focus. It's really the focus of what was this story trying to tell us. So, so Jacob starts out on his journey, and he's told that God is going to make him, he's going to give him offspring, he's going to give him land. And so then the story goes along, and to make a long story short, it comes to the center point where Jacob's family is being born to him. And then it turns around and heads back out to the point where now he's coming back to the land with his family. But the center point was the building up of the family of Jacob. And surrounding the building up of, of Jacob's family is a story about Rachel, okay? 
And within this, what happens, Rachel becomes a very central figure in what's going to play out with his family and even how the storyline will carry forward into the life of Joseph and beyond. But what we see here, when Jacob asked for Rachel as his bride, Laban tricks Jacob and gives him Leah instead. And so that's the beginning of Rachel's shame. When she was, she was actually shamed in front of the entire village where they lived. And so I'll, I'll show you that here in, let's see if I have it. Let me see if I've got that. I'm pretty sure I do. Okay, Genesis 29:22. There it is. Okay, Genesis 29:22. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Okay, when he gathered together, that's the Hebrew word asaf. It's asaf. He gathered together all the people and made a feast because Jacob had asked for for his bride. Laban brings everyone together, and instead of giving Rachel as was expected, he gave Leah. And so Rachel is sitting alone saying, I should be there. Everyone was gathered for me to be given, but I wasn't given. I was overlooked. I was passed by, right? For, you know, I never thought about that aspect of how was she feeling in that moment, right? And then we go forward in the story. Now she's unable to bear, right? She's not able to have children. And so she has further shame and it's just building. But that wasn't the end of her story either, right? So the scriptures say that God remembered Rachel. This is in uh, 30 verse 22. God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she actually uses the same word, asaf. It's like God has gathered in my reproach. He's taken in my shame. And so this is the offset to Laban who passed her by, right? And the beginning of her shame began. Now God has taken her shame. And she said, and she called the name of her son, Yosef, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Okay, so the word Yosef and Asaph are even related. So God, she's saying, God has taken away my reproach and she's given me honor and may he yet add more honor, right? So there's this aspect of a turnaround that's taking place in her life as well. And, there, and, and interestingly enough, the turning around and the removal of the shame was in the birth of a son named Joseph, right? Who would become a redeemer for, for the children of Israel in the days ahead, right? And the scriptures... In the scriptures, we understand that there would, or the sages derive that there would be two messiahs. There would be a messiah son of Joseph and a messiah son of David. The messiah son of Joseph would be a suffering messiah, right? And the messiah son of David would be one that would rule and reign. And so the messiah son of Joseph, or Joseph here is, is a redeemer that was born lifting shame off his mother and who would then go on and would suffer right? Through betrayal, through enslavement, but would overcome and be raised up to be the head over all Egypt, 
right? And it would be one who would reconcile with his brothers, one who would give them hope in the midst of famine, one who would restore what was lost, right? And so again, we see, and we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, so we'll probably repeat this over and over, but there's so many parallels with Yeshua and Joseph, right? Who came and suffered on behalf of his people, who was betrayed by his brothers, but who rose and will one day bring the reconciliation to his brothers, giving hope for all who have borne shame. Hope to rise from the ashes, hope for a new day. And it's, it's the process of becoming, you know, many times in our lives, we have to have luxuries or uh, various things that would ensnare us stripped away such that we can come to a place of brokenness where God can bring restoration and redemption to us. But just as in the story with Joseph, you know, not one thing is lost. God takes those shattered pieces and he builds them back up and brings restoration to us such that nothing is lost. And so with Joseph, yes, he was deceived. I mean, not with Joseph, with Jacob, he was deceived by Laban and given Leah. But even within that, Judah was born, right? The offspring of half of the children of Israel were born through Leah, through that deception. And Judah, the line through whom Messiah would come, came as well. So God had a plan and a purpose. He had a way of redeeming that which seemed to be trouble. The question was, how would, how would Jacob respond to it? As, as Laban deceives him, would he turn and continue to move in deception or would he walk in uprightness? And Jacob walked uprightly before Laban. He honored his commitment. He worked his full 14 years. And then even after they began to go into the next phase of their agreement where Jacob was beginning to get his own flocks in the midst of it, Laban sought to deceive him over and over. And he says that Laban changed his wages, uh, some, some say 10, some say 100 times. In fact, I'll, I'll read that here in Genesis 31. After Laban had overtaken Jacob, as Jacob would he headed back to the land. Oh, I have it in here. He says, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my, my sleep fled from my eyes. These these 20 years I have been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. All right, so what, what do we see here? We see Jacob recounting how he walked uprightly even when Laban was acting deceitfully. He didn't let that direct his footsteps. Instead, he said, God will be my defender. 
And he said, and God was my defender last night. And because he's my defender, because he's the one who said he would guard me and he is the one who guarded me, I'm not leaving empty handed. Right. God has fulfilled his promise. And that is what, uh, you know, within this, we read the story of how Jacob had made his agreement with Laban and how he had agreed to take the spotted and the striped flock. And continually, Laban would change the criteria of, well, here's the type of uh, the flock that you'll receive now, right? Because Laban didn't like the way the flocks were turning out and he saw his wealth going away. So he would change and stipulate different terms. But every time he would stipulate different terms, God would cause the sheep and the flock to bear according to the terms such that Laban's wealth was taken from him and transferred over to Jacob. Now this was done by God's hand, right? There, was, there would be a way where you could say, I'm going to work for, for Laban. We've agreed that I'm going to um, get various flocks. He could say, well, how can I take this into my hand to fulfill God's promise? How can I make this work? But instead he laid it before the Lord and God said, I'm going to make it work for you. Right? So Jacob trusted God to do it. He walked in righteousness and as a result, he was blessed and he was protected along the way. Now, fascinatingly, the scripture so many times has parallels that it brings out of the text, either with the use of specific phrases or words or parallels in the stories. Within the story here of Laban and what's taking place with Jacob, it says that Jacob headed out, he left, and on the third day it was told to Laban that Jacob had fled. And then Laban pursued him for seven days and caught up to him. And it's, it's a picture of Pharaoh pursuing the children of Israel as they, as they fled Egypt, right? And also when the children of Israel, Israel fled Egypt, the wealth of Egypt was transferred to them. Just as before Jacob left Laban, the wealth of Laban was transferred to him. It's a fascinating story. There's so many connections that it would take many weeks for us to go through even just this story of Jacob to put together all that, that God has woven into his scriptures to tell us stories, to help us make connections. But the story here with, with Jacob is that he had come, he had left still walking as a deceiver or having walked as a deceiver, right? Whether he wanted to or not, he was still walking in that identity. But now he had gone, he had served Laban. He had had, he had really borne the deceit back just as he had deceived now he had been deceived and now he's been walking uprightly and he's going before or he's leaving and taking his family back to the land as God had called him to do and next week what we're going to encounter is that Jacob again goes and faces something head-on he faces Esau head-on right so he's going to walk in right righteousness in all of his endeavors and trust God to be his deliverer in each one because God had promised to safeguard him along the way and to fulfill his word. You know, 
when we talk about coming up from the ashes and out of the low, out of the pits, out of the difficulties of our life, the key thing that helps us make it through is our hope, our hope that God is with us. And we sang earlier about the importance of God giving us his vision, right? And helping us to see things the way that he sees. So many times in the scriptures, we see that a lot of the difficulties that people faced were because they didn't see as God sees, right? When you have the story of Abraham being promised offspring from his own flesh, he and Sarah don't see that God can actually bring the life from Sarah. And so Hagar is given, right? And so that brought difficulty. Um, Jacob, with his blessing, ended up operating in deceit because he didn't see how's God going to do this. And there's many other examples. But within our lives, when we come into trials and difficulties, well, we always need to be praying for vision, but we need to be praying for God's vision of how do you see this difficulty I'm in. Give me your eyes to see this so that I can know my direction, my path, where my trust is, where my hope is, and so that I can actually walk according to your plans, not according to my own machinations, right? Because that's where, where God moves and actually moves powerfully when we submit ourselves to him and his ways and align our vision with him. You know, we have within the scriptures examples of great men of faith and the patriarchs who didn't always make the right turns. They didn't always make the right decisions or walk in perfection. And I think we can be thankful for that, right? Because we know that we too don't walk in perfection and always making the right turns. But where we place our hope, where we fix our eyes, is going to determine our footsteps. All right? If we look to ourselves and to the world for our solutions, then the flesh and the world is what we're going to get. Right? When we look to the one who is the latter, right? who makes the connection between earth and heaven, that's when we can see God's work being fulfilled in our lives, even the things that seemed impossible, the things that didn't seem likely, the things that we didn't know how they would turn out. We know that he goes before us and we trust in him to bring about the transformation really within us, just as Jacob had a transformation and started out as one who grasped the heel and became one who has overcome, who has striven with man and who has striven with God and who has overcome. We too are called to be overcomers and to walk and the paths of righteousness. Amen. Do anybody have anything that you wanted to share? I've always felt it was very interesting uh, about not knowing that he was sleeping with Leah. Mm -hmm. He must have been really drunk, I guess. I, I guess he could have been, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is interesting that he wouldn't know. Now, the thing, um, 
So, I mean, the scriptures say it was dark and he couldn't see. But anyway, yeah, it's, it, is a, it is a challenging thing to be like, well, but ad additionally, I think part of the reason, part of the aspect is it's a turnabout of what took place with his father who couldn't see. Yes. Right. And there's, again, the mistaken identity that took place. And so it's possible that God just blocked his eyes yeah, that he couldn't recognize. Was very interesting. The other thing I thought was very interesting was a Jacob uh, kissed Rebecca. Doesn't it say? Uh, I, I get my yeah, that Jacob Jacob kissed Rebecca when he saw her. Rebecca when he saw her. I thought that was very interesting because usually in the ancient Near East, you know, that's not something that is normally done, and so I just. These are just things I've picked out that kind of go, eh, you know. Sure. It's not true, but that it just, you know, um, when you study the ancient Near East, it, that's not the way it normally happens. Mm. But again, God's hand right. on all of that. So. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, the aspect of him kissing Rachel right when he shows up. I'm sure it was not an intimate kiss, but a, a greeting type kiss is what I would expect um, among perhaps among family. I actually don't know the, the customs well enough to say whether that would have been or would not have been a custom amongst family members. Um, <clears throat> but it is interesting. Now, this is something I, I, I didn't talk about, but when he met her, he cried, right? Now that's strange, right? Because you meet this woman and you're like, okay, well, this is God's provision. He's led me to Laban's house, and now here's the well where I've met the, the daughter of Laban, just like happened for Eliezer. And you should be like, like Eliezer, remember how you prayed? He said, blessed are you, Lord, who has not withheld kindness and truth from my master. <clears throat> but then Jacob, you see, he cries. It's like, hmm, that's an interesting contrast as well. And so him crying parallels what Esau did just a few chapters earlier, right? When, when Esau came and he found out they didn't have the blessing, he let out a great and uh, he let out a great cry. But then he said, you know, do you have another blessing for me, Father? And he wept. <clears throat> so the sages connect those two weepings with one another that Jacob had caused Esau to weep through the deception. And now when Jacob comes and he sees Rachel, He's recognizing that he can't fully have her. And there's a weeping that's taking place. And one is he doesn't have the money to do it. He's, uh, he's the sages say that he prophetically saw that he would not be buried with her. Um, and there was tragedy that, that unfolded as a result of many circumstances that, that played out in this. But the weeping was a connection and it goes really deep. Uh, unfortunately, I can't go into all of it because I don't recall it well enough to do. But um, within the weeping, Jacob was going to have to come to a point where he could recognize the suffering that he had caused his brother. And then that would bring him to a place of reconciliation with his brother when the two would embrace and both weep together. In fact, um, I've heard it spoken of as, 
this, within this story, there are multiple births that took place. You had Jacob and Esau. They were born together. And then you had, well, allusions to a new birth for Jacob after he received the blessing. But when he did, only his brother cried. Whereas when, at the first birth, they both cried. Okay, and now Jacob comes to Rachel and only he's crying. Okay, so again, only one brother's crying. Then when they come together to reconcile, the two brothers weep together because there's a new birth taking place through restoration, through reconciliation. And so even thinking about that, right, when we talk about the, becoming a new creation through Yeshua, our Messiah, when we come to life through him, there's a new birth, right? Because there's a reconciliation taking place between us and God through Yeshua. There's a new life that comes forth through that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? <clears throat> yes. 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 Right. Yeah, and that vision is prophetic vision. It's. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and Torah. Yeah, and it's it's Torah and it's prophetic vision, and yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what, what Suzanne just said for those who are online where, where there is no vision the people perish correct and happy is he who keeps the Torah yeah and um, yeah absolutely so the vision yeah it's key that we get connected with how God sees things and what he's wanting to share with us what he's wanting to show us and how he's wanting to direct our steps amen anyone else All right. Amen. Um, let's pray. Father, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to uphold your word and your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness to the covenant. We thank you for the new life that we have, the hope that we have through Yeshua, our Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that even when we hit low points, there is yet hope. Lord, we ask for a vision. We ask for dreams. We ask for a revelation. We ask for uh, encouragement from brothers and sisters. Lord, to walk in righteousness, to do our best and let you take care of all the details. Lord, that we would lay it in your hands. Lord, we give you thanks and glory in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.